0: Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you, and the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood, sports, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker,
0: former Marvel lawyer, current greenberg Traurig media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, Paul. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, you know? It's a chilly weekend in New York, but it feels like spring is around the corner. I do have an announcement to make, but I think it might be embargoed, so we'll, we'll maybe we'll make it next week. Yeah, things are good. Things are good. A lot of hard work, and um, it's, it's starting to pay off. Yeah, that was so, a cliffhanger. Mesh, let's let's jump right in. <laughs> oh, congrats to you! Now you're an uncle.
0: Uncle yes. Mesh. Yes, thank you. My my sister had a kid. Uh, her and her husband. Very happy for them. Beautiful girl. I am excited to be an uncle. First time. So, I am uh, I'm here in D.C. just hanging out with fam very cool well congratulations
1: i am uh an uncle many times over and i can tell you that it's the most fun because there's like it's only the the good stuff without the real responsibility that's what i hear yeah maybe you have to change a diaper or two
0: (laughs) maybe once
1: yeah i'm sure i I, I will at some
0: point but yes thank you very much appreciate it
1: well let's get into it i'm wearing a Yellowstone type shirt jacket this week because we got some yellowstone drama i guess cut right to the chase. Kevin Costner, who is John Dutton, the patriarch of the Dutton family, by far the lead star of Yellowstone, which is, you know, the most important show on Paramount, number one show in America by a lot of metrics, has like 12 million viewers for season four and season five is around that. Apparently there's a story and it's disputed his side saying one thing and Paramount saying another, but apparently it was reported in Puck, that Kevin Costner has long been a little bit of a prima donna on this show, has been difficult to work with, has caused some morale issues. And then recently, because season five was 14 episodes, and they broke it down into two parts. So they had eight episodes to start, which is almost like a season order. And then they did another six episodes, second part. Apparently, it's being reported that Kevin Costner said he wanted to do all of his scenes for this back half of the season in one week. Yep. And that he also wanted time to take on another project called Horizon, which he was gonna direct and star in, uh, which was a similar Western theme. And apparently, you know, Paramount obviously was not okay with that. They denied that request and they are like, well, actually, no, you're the star of the, sure, show, the show, and we pay you yeah. over a million dollars <laughs> an episode, so. Is that
0: what he gets paid now? He gets paid a million dollar an episode?
1: He's the highest paid actor on TV. I think he gets, Rumors are he gets 1.2 million an episode Whoa. for season five, and he's asking for 1.5 million an episode for season six. But listen, that's that's not unheard of. To be to be clear, it, that's a, that's Friends money. It is Friends money, and it's Seinfeld money, and it's Two and a Half Men money or whatever. Not not quite that, but it is such a significant show for Paramount, and it's launched 1883, 1923. Yeah, yeah. Arguably, Tulsa King, mayor of Kingstown, yeah. so. It's it's basically like the most important show that Paramount has. And so you got to imagine they're generating some revenue. They're selling Paramount Plus subscriptions, although back seasons are on Peacock, which is probably- This you know, goes
0: back to my thing of like, I, rem- I keep going back and forth trying to figure out where- uh, Yellowstone is that said, you know I would consider myself or used to consider myself a diehard Yellowstone fan. I used to talk about it all the time, was obsessed with it, it so crazy. sometimes I would even ask people, "Oh my God, does this stuff actually happen in Montana to when then someone said to me, like, are you an idiot? and uh, how could you actually believe that this <laughs> stuff would really happen? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what happens in the West, uh, but Dude, I couldn't get Didn't you go to Montana season. for your I birthday? When, I went solo to Montana yeah. for my birthday. Had the best time ever. Fly fishing. Uh, you know, I shot some, what do they call it, skeet shooting. It was great. I ate some elk. It was it was a magical time. But this show, this season, for some reason, I just couldn't get through it. And I think because they had that mid-season like stop. I'm like, now I've forgotten where I am and it might be a while for me to get back into it. And I've heard people complain about this season, but maybe this is just because of all the drama that's happening and and the fact that there's all these spinoffs happening too.
1: Well, that's the thing. So, you know, it's like if you're Paramount and I haven't discussed this with anyone at Paramount, this is just speculation from what's on the internet and and being, you know, in similar situations throughout my career, you have Taylor Sheridan who is, you know, for lack of a better term, the goose that lays the golden egg, right? And he is the Ryan Murphy, the Shonda Rhimes, like the showrunner that you want to build a a whole content sort of catalog off of. And so he's probably just trying really hard to write everything he needs to write for five different shows and like reviewing scripts and working with the writer's room and doing all that. So I think he probably fell a little behind on season five and was like, I need some time let's take, and it's 14 episodes. So maybe it was always planned, but you know, when I do these and I negotiate deals for TV talent from time to time, and I can tell you these, these deals, especially for integrated platforms, like, you know, an NBCU or an ABC, ESPN, Disney, or or whatever, these deals are complicated in that, like the studio, their draft form is, is going to be something that's really challenging to sort of comply with as an actor because, you know, they want to be able to have you do so many episodes without really guaranteeing a minimum. And then they want, maybe they'll build in a little bit of a bump from season to season, but they want a lot of options on you. They want to prevent you from being able to take on any sort of other projects in television. And they want to have approval rights over you doing things in film that don't conflict with their schedule or maybe even commercials. And there's a huge grant of rights. So I'm sure... Kevin Costner didn't sign the standard deal, but in any case, if you're making that much money, of course the network's going to want approval over you know your side projects, and they're going to want to make sure that you're there for the schedule that they're shooting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because you're the you're the key sort of actor in the show, and there's other things like you know promotion. How much is he supposed to promote the show? How many marketing appearances does he have to do? How many talk shows does he go on? It could just be a negotiation over season six, like, hey, you know, um, I want more money, or this or that, or maybe it's it's a time where he's he feels like you know he's given everything he has to the show and to Yellowstone and and thinks he should do something else now. But you know, if you're Paramount and and Taylor Sheridan and you're like, well, you know, he's a critical piece of the show. We could move on, maybe Matthew McConaughey or whatever, but there's no guarantee we replicate the success. But if it becomes too much of a headache, then, yeah, you have to move on. So I think they're basically saying, you know, we have nothing to announce on season six, but we're a big fan of his. He's a big fan of ours. And everyone wants to sing Kubaya because no one wants to blow it up until they have
0: to. I get the money side of it where if something's doing really well, just keep going as long as there's people watching. But then there's like, you know, some shows just can go on too long and then they don't, they're not as great. I mean, there's a whole list of them. Uh, that where you were watching season one season two season three and then you're like wait season four season five season six is just getting a bit choppy different characters some people leave so I wouldn't want to see that with Yellowstone
1: well yeah when the key writers leave there's often a drop-off right like and I'm a big Simpsons fan and I don't know how many maybe the Simpsons have been going on for like 40 seasons and the first couple were were good but not great and then like three through whatever 13 were amazing and then there was a little bit of a drop off and now you know it's been so long there's it's not going to be consistent but you know i think you know succession announced that they're ending after the fourth season ted lasso is rumored to end after the third season and you know sometimes things have an arc and sometimes it's a question of you know does the talent want too much are they too difficult to work with or do they want to do other things because nothing lasts forever right yellowstone behind the scenes drama might actually exceed the on-screen drama
0: Yeah, totally. All right. So one other piece of news, Paul, the unfortunate death of Nipsey Hussle, the rapper uh, who was was murdered um, by Eric Holder Jr., who was just convicted and sentenced to 60 years to life in prison for first degree murder, two counts of voluntary manslaughter, an assault with a firearm you know, at least justice to some degree has been served.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a really sad thing. I remember 2019 when it happened and I'm I'm not going to lie, like I, I wasn't the biggest Nipsey. I just didn't know that much about I, his yeah, music same, and how same. much he meant to the community. But the outpouring of support when he died and then, you know, you start hearing his albums and, and listening to him and digging in and you realize what he meant to the community, how he used to be a crip. And then he wanted to like actually spend his life Improving his neighborhood, investing in his neighborhood, opening small businesses, helping employ people, working towards eliminating gang violence, you know, collaborating with, you know, police and and government officials to sort of improve the community. And he would walk around in an area that I guess he was a target. I mean, he was a successful rapper. He had a lot of money. So you're always a target in that world. But, you know, he would walk around without security. He was gunned down outside his clothing store in Crenshaw and this guy Eric Holder apparently was um was also a crip. It's interesting cuz at trial and like you said he was convicted last year and then sentenced last week to 60 years. But at trial his defense attorney said, "Well, it should only be manslaughter. It shouldn't be premeditated because he was he was reacting to the fact that Nipsey Hustle called him a snitch or said they had paperwork on him, which is a sort of slang term to imply that he had been working with the authorities and that's what sent him into this like murderous rage." Uh, and he also shot two other people. And that's how you get the 60 years. But yeah, it's just a really sad thing. And, you know, Nipsey Hussle was, I guess his his actual name is Ermius Ashkedam, which I think is Eritrean. I had a friend in college whose last name was Ashkadom as well. And it's just such a sad thing that someone who wants to be a sort of like a pillar and a beacon in their community and, and change the narrative and give people opportunity and hope is gunned down. I know, it sucks. You know, it, it's almost like if he had escaped and if he had security or if he moved to a nicer part of town and wasn't, you know, like left the community that he was born in, maybe he'd still be alive, but he didn't want to do that. Right. Like he wanted to live on his own terms and invest in where he was from.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Very sad. And you know, in this case, uh, glad to see the court system do, do their work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the defense said they'd appeal, but it's a tragedy for all involved. And I, I do feel, bad for eric holder jr um having to spend so much time in in prison but let's hope that his legacy lives on nipsey hustles that is
0: yeah all right paul let's take a break and then we'll get back with our main topic of the episode section 230 and what it could mean for the internet and platforms like youtube google and twitter
1: So, Mesh, last week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard an uh, oral argument in the case of Gonzalez v. Google, which is a case, the plaintiff is the family of Nohemi Gonzalez. And she was killed in the 2015 Paris attacks. And her family is suing Google because they're saying that the YouTube, alg- so YouTube is owned by Google, obviously, yeah. and the algorithm recommended and failed to take down ISIS videos or videos that were sort of like, Recruitment videos for ISIS and the presence of those videos on YouTube encouraged someone to participate in the Paris attacks. And they never really had evidence of someone saying, Well, I watched this video and then I went to Paris and then I attacked this person. But they were just like, The videos on YouTube create liability for Google because of the algorithm. And that's sort of the fact pattern. The Supreme Court is deciding this now. And we don't know when the decision will come down, but based on the oral argument and what the justices said, it doesn't seem that a lot is going to change as far as how Section 230 is interpreted. But let me explain what Section 230 is, because I think that's probably critical. And so a lot of people commonly refer to it as the law that created the internet. Really what it is, it's 47 USC, Section 230. It's the Communication Decency Act of 1996, and it basically says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And what this actually means sort of in plainer English is that if you are a internet distribution platform, like a forum, like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, you are not liable for the content that third parties post on your platform. So you're not necessarily encouraging it. And also the second part of that statute is that these platforms also have the authority to moderate their content and to remove content that they deem to be objectionable. So it gives broad latitude and immunity to online platforms. And the reason it does that is to allow the internet to develop, right? Because if you owned a website and you had to worry about, you know, getting sued a million times for someone's video, you would just not let people post videos. You would have a, a completely different vetting process before anything would go live. And it's just antithetical to the open internet to sort of, to make these platforms liable. And for example, like 500 hours of content get uploaded to YouTube every minute, I think. And so could imagine how hard it would be to actually error check and
0: moderate and vet all of that. The internet wouldn't exist without Section 230. It was like 27, almost 30 years ago. And to your point, as the internet was trying to get to where it is today, I mean, it couldn't have gone through all these lawsuits. I think one of the examples that are used, if we used a modern day platform today, like Yelp or any type of food review, if you're a commenter on Yelp and you say something about a restaurant, that restaurant gets shut down or they go out of business, that restaurant can't sue that person for making that comment or sue Yelp itself. Well, they could sue the person. They can't sue Yelp. They can't sue Yelp.
1: Yeah, so the section 230 is just immunity for the platform, not for the author.
0: It doesn't protect the person. Correct. Yeah, and so I think now though, given where the internet is and where these platforms are and how powerful they are and the amount of content that, you know, the the amount that we consume... I think the argument is that, you know, these rules don't really. It's not that they don't apply, but we need to have some type of reform around them to make sure that there's accountability. And, you know, in the case of like blaming the algorithm or saying that the algorithm is working in a certain way, because obviously the way these algorithms work is that you increase the amount of engagement on a platform. That means that there's more eyeballs. You can sell more ads depending on the type of platform. And so like where can moderation actually exist in those areas? I do believe it can actually happen. Um, But will it happen is the question.
1: Well, this is a, like I said, this is a very multifaceted issue. And I'll, I'll summarize. So basically, Section 230, when it was drafted, had exceptions. So there are exceptions for things like sex trafficking. There's no immunity for that. There's no immunity for copyright infringement because we have the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which we discussed in Episode 17 last season. We talked about how these VPN providers that are illegally allowing pirate you know, sites to operate can be liable. And so there's a whole process for how you take down things that are violating copyright rights, but it's a broad immunity with certain exceptions. And what the Supreme court is saying is like, okay, well, we hear you that maybe an algorithm is curating content and maybe that just goes slightly beyond just being an impartial platform. But at the same time, how can you make a usable user interface without some sort of algorithm? Because there's sure. literally so much, there's billions of pieces of content. There's no way to make it searchable or create lists or whatever without some sort of algorithm. So like having an algorithm doesn't necessarily not make you qualify for the immunity. And then the justices said, you know, what if there is something that needs to be limited or an exception that needs to be made or an additional exception in this case, or maybe another obligation to moderate in like the terrorist space. Let's let Congress determine that because if the court determines that, right, and it has an incredibly unintended, wide-reaching impact on the internet and leads to, as some justices said, like a billion lawsuits or like a flood of lawsuits, that's not intended. So they're like, this is such an important, critical thing. The internet's a $3 trillion industry, you know, annually. Let's not decide this on the fly. Let's let Congress, if there needs to be another exception to Section 230, let's have Congress decide that. Because this case has been litigated, not necessarily this exact case, but Section 230 has been challenged many times. Platforms have been sued, as you said, and they almost always come out immune. And the reason this case was slightly different is because they're saying, well, it's the algorithm. The the fact that YouTube has this algorithm, it's not necessarily immune, right? Because an algorithm is sort of curating and making decisions about what people see. And when you make decisions about what people see, maybe you are acting as a producer of content and not necessarily a publisher.
0: Right. Because like if we, you know, we use the example of, so in YouTube, you know, you watch certain type of video numerous, numerous times It is going to recommend you similar videos. Like for me, I happen to like competitive eating challenges. I watch a lot of these videos. Now you know something more about me and I want more and more of those videos. I mean, this is what TikTok has been very, very good at about learning that stuff. So then if YouTube is recommending you other videos that, you know, have to do with ISIS and, um, you know, terrorism, then it technically, the platform understands that this content exists. And so, I, you know, it's, the argument is like, well, if porn is not allowed on YouTube, so like it, now do, are we just going to be making a list of things that shouldn't be allowed here? And then, then it's not on the platform in, in the first place, right? I think that's kind of one of the big pieces here is that it comes back to like what is allowed on the platform. And then if it's not allowed on the platform, it wouldn't be recommended to you. Because it's not illegal, I guess, to have that type of content. Is that part of it? That's part of it. I mean, but the main thing is the
1: volume of content that is being uploaded and the volume of posts that are being created and the nature of the internet, the fact that it's ubiquitous, that it's instantaneous. We can't be too strict on how these platforms moderate what's available on them. Because if we allow lawsuits to creep through, then these platforms right. are not going to operate, and then overall, we won't have the platform. So it's like we're better off with the YouTube that may be a little bit more, sort of like permissive than we would want in the ideal. Because if we try to overcorrect or limit what YouTube can have, uh, or or make them install some ridiculous process that makes that takes three weeks to upload a video, yeah, then it's not going to function the way we need it to, and so. The internet's a good thing. It's evolving really quickly. We trust these platforms will moderate to some degree, and we're going to give them the flexibility to do so. But they're not liable if something slips through. They have to act reasonably. Now, there are exceptions, like I said, for copyright. If someone posts video using music that they don't have the rights to, the owner can send YouTube a notice. You have to have a DMCA agent and then say, hey, YouTube, my the music in this video is mine. They didn't ask for permission. They don't have a license. Take it down. And then YouTube takes it down. And right. And if they do, then they're not liable. So you can have a process like that, like, hey, this, this video has terrorism in it. Take it down. But
0: that's not required under Section 230 today. Yeah, I mean, look, it's interesting. One, one thought is... Uh Okay, if you are, let's say in this case, like some um, intelligence agency, you, you know, CIA or something like that, who's probably monitoring, you're probably monitoring YouTube and you're monitoring the people that are posting certain things that you want to follow and then you're following them in a certain degree. Would you actually want them not to be able to post on YouTube so that you couldn't potentially track them, et cetera, right? It's almost like you're allowing these people to act in public so that you could potentially have some type of. Paper trail or see who's watching them or see who's like, you know, going down that rabbit hole. Like I would argue that it probably presents some, um, you know, it's actual intelligence information versus if you say, okay hey, don't you're not allowed to post any of these things. And how would people actually track that? I'm just curious. I wonder if that's actually going through the heads of why, like, you know, these videos around terrorism are it's just, it, there's no, hey, you're not allowed to post these. I wonder to actually, if there's some type of like uh, framework.
1: Well, that, you know, that's Congress's call, right? Like if they want to make an exception, another exception to 230, they're they're willing, I mean, they have the right to do it. It's a, There's a political process, whether you think it's a flawed process or a perfect process is really outside the scope of the show, but there is a process. And I think the justices are saying like, we kind of want to stay in our lane. Right, right. We don't think merely having an algorithm means that you don't qualify for the immunity because every site has algorithm I mean the volume is just so high that you need this sure and but the second prong of of 230 is that and a lot of sort of like right-wing politicians take issue with the fact that platforms have the ability to moderate and take down content that they find objectionable So this is the flip side right like you want that you want them to have the freedom to not be sued if they miss something but at the same time, They do have the right to take stuff down. And so when Trump was deplatformed from Twitter uh, or Facebook, right, like a lot of right wing politicians said, well, they shouldn't be allowed to do that because, you know, these tech conglomerates, these massive companies with incredibly large reach are almost more powerful than the president. But Section 230 has sort of survived those challenges as well. And so it is an open question. But the. I can't think of a scenario how you would decide this without having a massive impact on the internet.
0: All right, folks, we're going to take a real quick break, and then we're going to get back right into it. Welcome back, folks. Paul, to continue your conversation, I'd love to get your thoughts on just where you see this going. Where do you, you know... Where did we come from? Section two hundred and thirty helped these tech platforms to survive, but obviously we're in a much different place now, and they're no longer technically needing that help to survive. They're in a much different place now.
1: Yeah, and and so Google's argument in this case was that you know Section two hundred and thirty protects them here, but it's not like carte blanche. And it's not that platforms can just do whatever they want and not be liable. And they did propose this. There's another test called the Henderson test, which basically came up because there was a a company that was taking third-party publicly available data on the internet and using it to compile lists about people and then providing that information to third parties and like rating agencies or whatever, credit report agencies. And when they were creating their summaries of the publicly available information, they were editorializing. They were leaving some stuff out. They were summarizing certain things. And in the course of doing that, they actually were content creators. That was what the court said, right? Because if if you're cherry picking what you put in, if if you, all you're doing is saying, I, I make a a thirty minute YouTube episode, better call Paul, and put it on YouTube, and YouTube's like, okay, cool. By the way, they talk about COVID-19 so they put a little, you know, flag on it, then that that's fine. But if what YouTube does is they take the 30-minute episode and then cut it down to 10 minutes or 15 minutes and change what I say, then they're not acting as in a manner that would uh, allow
0: them to to still be immune. Then it's editorial, right? Then they're they're Right.
1: they're creating the content in a sense. And 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 so the, the the distinction is is an algorithm creating content is it changing content enough such that it's creating content or should be considered a creator of content or is it purely okay. a publisher and that's what the court has to decide and they're saying that's too close a call like we we haven't heard their decision but th- based on the oral argument it sounds like they're going to say that's too close of a call like we don't we don't think we can decide that I mean, that's just speculation.
0: And, and one argument is saying that like, if they are recommending content, then they are in some way, like technically being, you know, it is editorial if they're recommending for, for you to watch something that you might like. And is that like, that's also like a gray area, right? That someone would argue like, well, they're recommending. That's what the plaintiff is saying. Right. The plaintiff is saying, if you're recommending and you're suggesting,
1: and then you're not an impartial platform. And they made it to the Supreme Court. So clearly there is something to that argument. But the Supreme Court has said, you know, based on the oral argument, that they don't think that's enough. Because how could you actually, in in today's internet age, how could you have a site that deals, that has millions to billions of users creating and uploading and viewing content
0: without an algorithm? Like, it just, how would it work? Yeah, I mean, user, I mean, it it goes back, we are talking about TikTok and it's like, it is the recommendation is what makes TikTok so great as a social platform. And when I say great as a social platform, I mean from like a user experience, right? Like obviously, there's a ton of stuff on there that's not always ideal. and I'll give an example in a second. Um, but it was that uh, YouTube, like in TikTok's case, they are known for their ability to recommend stuff that you like, right? So if I'm on if I'm on gardening TikTok, which is a thing, by the way, and it's pretty dope, it will start recommending you more videos that are around gardening tiktok which is well, I also I need to get on that because you. I'm trying to figure out
1: whether to plant <laughs> cherry tomatoes you, or it is
0: it is amazing
1: yeah it's getting to be that time in new york a couple of weeks <laughs> and and you you you'll find your answer so congress makes a law in the 90s right and they have a certain amount of exceptions for this immunity and you spend billions building out an internet platform and then all of a sudden You know, you think you have predictability. You think, oh, this is what the platform has to comply with in the U.S. I I have to have a copyright mechanism. I have to, you know, watch for sex trafficking. And you spend all this money developing a product that complies with the law as it's drafted. Is it fair for a judge to say, well, no, it didn't take down workout videos that had a mean employee, so you're liable now, right? Like, there's also... We have to be predictable so that businesses can invest and create their businesses in accordance with the law. Now, there's always gray area, but a major change to 230 coming out of a court is is really something that justices sound like they want to avoid.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, so on the opposite end of that, right, like there's a tiktoker named kevin lee or keith lee he, he's one of these like he, he he's a former mma fighter actually who just does these food reviews and he's blown up he's like working with mr beast now he's got like 10 million followers because he really like helps people and their businesses now he goes on tiktok and he eats food and then he raised the food and in this case those businesses end up like coming out of being in a terrible situation they're making tons of money they have lines out the door and one would say that he outed this business for being great. And then they have a ton of business and they owe him everything. And he's just like, you know, he's a feel good dude. He has a show on Good Morning America now. And so it's like the opposite end where you see the bad parts of the Internet with user generated content. And then you see on the on the good side, like how positive and how much impact it can have. It is just a lot of gray area there.
1: Right. And so imagine in the 90s, right, when the Internet, not everyone was on the Internet and it wasn't as critical a component of our society as it is today. If you're like the founding, you know, architects of the internet or creating the law that allows it to grow and thrive and evolve, you don't want to be heavy handed, right? Like if there was a 15 step process to get a video on a site, like the internet wouldn't have evolved the way it has. No, totally. And so I think what Congress is saying is like, there's the internet has potential to dramatically transform society, education, access to information, you know, Communication, everything. And we want it to be, we want to err on the side of it being free and open than restricted. And so they have a couple
0: exceptions, but by and large, it's pretty broad immunity. Yeah. It's, it's just really fascinating. I, um, I think maybe, you know, it's it's one of those balances where people probably want to see a bit more accountability where, look, we're not asking you to, like, make it that it's super, super hard to upload content or there's, like, massive moderations. Maybe it's simply we're adding to the list of things that shouldn't be allowed, which is already like, you know, you can't sex trafficking, porn, et cetera. You're adding to this list of things that could be, you know, pretty harmful to people and societies. And then on top of that, like, OK, you're not going to get sued on every single thing, but there needs to be some level of like, hey, maybe we need to do more good faith moderation to avoid certain things that happen. The issue is in this in, into the case of like making moderation not slow is that companies need to scale, platforms need to scale. If there's no scale there, then no one's actually using it. It's not getting any reach. But, you know, I think for this specific topic and episode when I was. Uh, doing research. It was funny because like the first thing I read about the hist- history of Section 230, a famous case came up, which was Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy Internet in 1994. And if Stratton Oakmont sounds familiar to anyone, it is the hedge fund from the Wolf of Wall Street and Prodigy Internet. Uh, for those who remember, I mean, in the early 90s, that was like that was before AOL. Right? It was before AOL. And I remember, dude, this was like a time where like the hustle to get internet on your computer was people would would hand you a cd a cd rom that says prodigy internet or aol and yeah you dial up everyone was dialing up throw that on your computer and like i was growing up in pakistan and we didn't have aol but we had our own internet service but Dude, those are the days. Like you're all fighting over who's going to be using the phone, you know, to, to connect to the internet. Right. Yeah. And if uh, someone's like
1: on the internet and you get a phone call, it's like, that, yeah, that yeah,
0: horrible noise. Yeah, exactly. But in 1994, stratton Oakbond versus Prodigy. Prodigy had posted or like on the Prodigy message forum that someone had posted the president of stratton Oakbond, i.e. the Wolf of Wall Street, had engaged in fraudulent acts. And the law basically favored Stratton-Oakman in this case and said that Prodigy had moderated the message board and therefore exercised editorial control. And in that case, you know, Stratton-Oakman won that case. And so I I think it's so interesting that you go back to 1994 and it's very similar problems that we see today that people would argue.
1: Right. Well, 230 came into effect in 96.
0: Right, right, right. And so like – this is an example of like, okay, well, if that was gonna be the case every time something is posted, there's no way, you know, any of these things would have happened. I mean, it just goes again to like why two thirty was important at that time. Right,
1: exactly. You know, a flood of a billion lawsuits.
0: Yeah, in this case it's like the Wolf of Wall Street versus like an internet company that's trying to change the world. They they're in favor of, you know, again, if you watch the Wolf of Wall Street, you know how terrible Stran Oakbun was. Um So it is just interesting to go and see the history and then now where we are today, which is, I don't think these internet companies need help, but uh, they don't need help getting to where the scale that they're at now. But what we need to do is, hey, the world's changed. The way we consume information has changed. The way we create information and content has changed. And, you know, rules always need to be updated. Right. I mean, there's still obligations on the the creator of the content, sure. right? Like you can't, you know, yeah.
1: and, and the YouTube terms will say you have to comply with applicable law and our community standards and no indecent stuff and this and that. It's just, you know, it's, it's like whack-a-mole times, you know, ability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's, too.
0: that's, I think where, yeah. I, where I'm sympathetic to these platforms. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, super interesting stuff. I think, um, good breakdown as always, Paul, I guess we'll see what happens with it. And, uh, We'll tune in next week, guys, and, and see what's up. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Better Call Paul, the podcast on Instagram. Follow me at Mesh Likhani, on Twitter. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week.
1: Thanks, everyone.